pumped up today to have my good friend Andrew Kirsch in the house. How are you? I'm doing great, Danny. Thank you for having me. It's truly an honor. I'm sure one of the biggest honors of your life being here today with us at uh, Compass Beverly Hills. I would say besides my wedding and the days my kids were born, this is the third greatest day. I I told you you'd think that. Anyway, Andrew Kirsch, where, where do we start? You are the founder of Skylar Kirsch. Did that I is say correct. that right? Sklar Kirsch. Sklar yes. Kirsch. You started your career at a huge global law firm. Uh, and I want to get into sort of, well, let's rewind it. Let's get, let's start with growing up. You grew up on the West Side and you know my wife. You guys grew up and be- went to Beverly. Uh, you were a all-American type kid, athlete, academic, nice guy. So Tell me about the you know where you were raised, how you were raised, and uh, how sports played a role in your in your early years and moving forward. And then we'll get into the law stuff. All right, fantastic. Well, uh, I feel like I'm reliving my youth uh, with my four year old daughter and my two year old son, and my son wants to play t ball every day, and my daughter uh, more of a dancer, performer, actress, although she also plays soccer. But we're sitting here in uh, on the corner of Beverly Drive in Wilshire, and I grew up right here in Wil- in, in Beverly Hills, and yeah. so these streets are uh, very familiar to me. Uh, like you said, I I've known your wife for a lot longer than gosh, I've known her. Thirty two, thirty three years, I think. She came uh, and joined us in the fifth grade, and she definitely. Uh, provided our fifth grade class with a big spark. Uh, me and several others were, were had, had big crushes on Jessica. She brought so, the energy? 
Uh, she definitely <laughs> did. So hopefully she's listening. Um, Doubtful that she is. But yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell her to listen to the, will you figure out what uh, what's the timestamp? We'll tell her to listen to this 10 seconds. Yeah, pretty early. <laughs> So, but Jessica knows that. Uh, but you won. You 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 got her, and and I, and the I rest won. is history. I, I always win when I play you. Yeah, we'll, we'll get in, we'll softball. get into softball. Uh, By the a way, Jessica later. introduced us. I remember uh, about fifteen years ago. I do remember she that she was like, "You got to meet Andrew Kirsch, great guy, yeah. baseball player, real estate guy. You guys will love each other." She made a shidduch. She if it did. wasn't for Jessica, I would have I would have never I known w- you. I wouldn't be here, and yeah. we wouldn't have uh, epic softball battles. Um, but yeah, no, I grew up in Beverly Hills, El Rodeo Elementary School, Beverly, Beverly Hills High School. Sports were a big part of my life. Right. Played Roxbury Park Little League, La Cienega Park Little League, uh, high school, and ended up playing in uh, at Northwestern, uh, where I went to college, and yeah. loved Chicago so much that I stayed. And Northwestern went, was so weak. And <laughs> went to law school. We crushed them. <laughs> Who's they? SC, baby. Well, we did play SC in the Rose Bowl and uh, <laughs> and we lost. But uh, no, so that's tell us about that. Tell us how how sports. Uh, obviously, when you were younger, we all played, but how sports sort of shaped you and impacted you. The competitive spirit, and you know, you went on to play Division One baseball, which is huge. Yeah, and uh, from there, you went on to law school. But let, let's talk about sports and how it's impacted you as a person and you getting into the business world sure so i mean growing up my family we had the dodger season seats uh my parents were big sports fans i i'm a big sports fan uh it's just in my blood i'm a competitive person so if i'm playing my daughter in i don't know tic-tac-toe and my son were shooting hoops or anything i'm gonna win or want to win. You don't let them win Absolutely at not. Nothing. Oh, that's brutal. So uh, it just, in my nature, um, you know, besides uh, my house and the schools I went to, I spent probably the third most amount of time would be at Dodger Stadium growing up. Wow. I was there for Kirk Gibson's home run. You were at that uh, game, that yes, World Series I, game I, one. I showed up late to David Levine's bar mitzvah, October 15th, 1988. I remember it like it was yesterday. That was a good strategic decision to stay late. He said he would have missed mine or showed up late if if he had an opportunity. Totally understood. Uh, So he understood. Uh, So let's see. I was 13 years old then and so impactful. They still haven't won a World Series since. since, And that game seven loss against Houston two years ago, I was there. And it was painful. I don't know. it It was crushing. And I'm 43, almost 44 years old. And yet I still act like a little boy when it comes to certain sports. And I can't just watch a random, I don't know, Indians Royals game, right? But if it affects the Dodgers, you're interested. Northwestern or the Clippers. I'm actually a Clippers fan that yeah. was never really a uh, Lakers fan. I'm it, it's sort of it's my escape, right? It's yeah. my escape from the from the daily grind of of work. And uh, it, it's 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 my my fantasy land, I guess, my Game of Thrones. So um, uh, I I would love for my kids to be involved in it, and and I think it teaches a lot about a person. Uh, for sure. I know you play baseball, and baseball is a a great sport because it combines team elements where sure. you, you the camaraderie and 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 sacrificing yourself for the greater team but yet there are individual components of baseball when you're in the batter's box it is just you 
uh, no different than playing tennis or golf. And so it has so many individual components where it's on your shoulders. And, and when the game's on the line and, and you have to get a base hit and it's really just, you're either going to succeed or fail. And when baseball, you're going to fail what seven out of 10 times. Yeah. And if you do that, you're considered fantastic. Hall of Fame. Yeah. That's uh it's a tough sport to um uh to know that you're going to fail so much and yet that's considered successful. And so sports have really propelled me of being very competitive in the business world and uh I want to you know, win every deal and try and get every client and and it's every day is like a game for me. Yeah. Let me go back. How in the heck did you become a Clippers fan growing up in Beverly Hills in the 80s and 90s? Showtime Lakers, Magic, Kareem, Worthy, Cooper, AC Green, Rambis, Nixon, on and on. Who did I miss? Michael Thompson. <laughs> how, how did you become a Clippers fan? Yeah, well, or was so that like a... A more recent thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah I would say the, in between. I definitely did not uh, jump on the bandwagon with Chris Paul and, and, and Blake Griffin. This it was well before that. Uh Although we were big sports fans, we were huge Dodger fans. We had season seats. You know, the season ended in October, and then we sort of took a break, and we never jumped into basketball. Um, and when the Clippers moved to Staples Center when it opened in 1999, and they offer two-for-one packages, and your total price is, I don't know, 30 or $40 to go to a game, and contrast that with the Lakers, where it was several hundred dollars to go yeah, to a yeah. game, uh, that was an easy decision. It was so. a fiscal decision. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a fun young team in the early 2000s they of did. Lamar Odom and Quentin Richardson and it Elton a, Brand. And yeah. That it was, was an exciting time. And so them. you contrast that with the Lakers where, yeah, they were winning. And it, it's almost, to me, it was like too easy to be a Lakers fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like they kept on winning. You had drama with Shaq and Kobe. And yeah. I don't know. I just liked the... the, the the underdog, the underdog story yeah. of of the Clippers, similar to Northwestern, you know, the smallest yeah. school in the Big Ten, and we have to fight above our of, above our weight Play class, above your weight for yep, sure, in order to compete football, basketball, baseball, other sports. So, um, although the Dodgers are a big market team, I almost feel like sometimes they're they have this underdog uh, feel. They're not like the Yankees or the Red Sox, and and so that's part of my spirit. Maybe it's also because I'm only five foot seven, and it's I've always been the underdog when it comes to sports. Yeah, uh, unlike you, who's it. like six six two twenty, chiseled. Like yes, you know, you're six four two twenty, six four. Okay. Yeah, but chiseled, definitely six chiseled. six with the uh, Jewish afro. Yes, the Jew from high but top. It, it's looking short and yeah, tight. Just said it's high and tight. He liked it from last week. I got it high and tight. I got to cut it high and tight. Okay. I'm losing my hair. What do you want me to do here? This isn't the 90s Well, I can anymore. give you some secret sauce for that, too. I, I, yeah. I would love that. So yeah. sports was a huge part of your life. I know we had that in common, yeah. the competitive nature and the challenges and, you know, the grind of, I think a lot of people don't realize also, you know, when we say being competitive, when you play even in a competitive high school level, but certainly college, they don't realize the schedule of uh, an athlete in college when you have a full set, a full full set of classes, you know, four hour, four classes. And then you have practice for three hours and you have weight training for an hour and conditioning for an hour and then go study. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize that. I mean, we've been doing that since we've been 14, but certainly once college hit, it was, you know, 24 seven. And I think that prepares you also for just the, the energy level needed and the stamina needed to really grind it out in work. And then you to get into your career, you went to law school, um, 
very impressive academics. You went to Northwestern Law School? Yeah, so both yeah. Uh, double purple. Yeah. So, so you, you had cut terrible me open grades. I bleed purple. Bleed purple. Yeah. You were a real dummy well, with bad grades. Your SAT scores were like mine then. Well, I actually had to take them as opposed to you, where I think you paid somebody to take yours, and that's how you got into SC. But yes, uh, I don't think I ever took the SATs. I just hit four hundred foot bombs. And like you're in. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, yes. To, to speak about the uh, the time commitment of of being a college athlete at Northwestern, where you actually have to take your exams, unlike the school that you went to. Um, <laughs> It is, uh, I, I, I actually, I don't know what students do with all their free time who don't play a sport. I, I think, what did you do with keggers. all that time? Yeah. Yeah. Beer bongs, keggers. I don't know. I well, mean, my wife says that I, I didn't have a true college experience because I played sports. And so while she went to parties and, yeah. you know. I've heard that too. Yeah. So you go to law school, you come out of law school, and you started your career as an attorney at a big global firm. Were you at Gibson and Dunn? Or uh, no, that was our competition. Oh. Latham and Watkins. Latham and Watkins. Same difference. Like yeah. Massive, yeah. hardcore. So tell us about that. Tell us about that experience, how intense that was, and then why you left to go to a smaller boutique firm and then sure. eventually starting your own firm. Was that part of the plan from day one or is that just organically develop? Tell us a little bit about that once you started your career. And yeah, from there. absolutely. So look, the, the time rigors of, of playing college sports and uh, having to keep up uh, uh, an academic, a good academic record in order to get into a good law school uh, prepared me for the rigors of being at a large behemoth law firm like Latham and Watkins, yeah. where clients and you know the partners expect you to be available all hours of the day, evening, weekends, holidays, and uh, high stakes. Uh, initially, I was uh, doing litigation, and then I morphed over to the trans real estate transactional group. Um, so high stakes litigation at first for me, and then high stakes uh, corporate commercial real estate. I mean, we're talking about deals where uh, billion dollar figures were the norm, mm -hmm. uh, major office buildings, hospitality, uh, transactions, gaming casinos, uh, large multifamily properties. So it prepared me to be organized because you're dealing with a massive amount of paper, a massive, massive amount of, uh, people and logistics and, and closings. And, uh, it's a high stakes, real estate and high, high stakes uh, legal transactions. Yeah. And so I was there from 2000 through, I think, the end of 06, early 07. I had an opportunity to help start the LA office of a Boston-based firm called Goodwin Proctor. I was there for a few years, and then the uh, Great Recession hit. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a big pushback on, on large law firms and the escalating uh, billing rates. Mm -hmm. uh, the clients were uh, not wanting to to pay those rates, uh, you know, even though LA is a major market, uh, it's a market where there's a lot of middle market activity in the commercial world, corporate, M&A, real estate. And so I saw an opportunity where, although there were a lot of um, boutique litigation firms, there were almost no boutique transactional firms. Uh, right. You were either a large, massive. a massive firm or one guy like a solo own. practitioner. Yeah. 
And so uh, my partner, after spending a couple of years at a boutique firm called Reigns Feldman, I uh, met Jeff Sklar, my partner, and he's a corporate M&A attorney and I'm a commercial real estate transactional attorney. And we formed Sklar Kirsch and started with about five lawyers at the time in 2013. And now we're approaching 35 attorneys. Wow. Yeah. God, has it been since it's been six years it's, now? It we're seems like we're it in our happened. seventh year. Seventh it's year. crazy. So now you have yeah. 35 attorneys. Yeah. And what categories you cover? It's more than just real estate, M&A. It seems sure. like it's developed now into what, what, what else are you guys yeah. specializing in? So I run the real estate uh, and that spans all asset classes, multifamily, retail, shopping centers, office buildings, hotels, industrial buildings. Jeff Sklar runs uh, the corporate department, which is really across all industries. So big on digital media, uh, entertainment, uh, uh, manufacturing companies, restaurants, yeah. fashion. That's the buying and selling of, of companies. Companies and all uh, venture, venture funds, capitalizing uh, uh, startups. Uh, and then last year we um, we started a litigation group. I I wish that none of my clients were in litigation. I despise litigation. I think it's extremely inefficient. But yet we're in a litigious society, yeah. and and so we felt that it was important to offer uh, litigation services to our clients, and to the extent they can't resolve their disputes in a uh, mediation or or amicable way then that's the last resort litigation is there and it says something about our society because our litigation group has grown from not having anyone to i think we're eight or nine lawyers wow. within a year there's a demand for it, it there is just and we're in a great economy usually litigation is countercyclical, where uh when the economy turns then there's more litigation but the, co the economy is booming and yet we're extremely busy in our litigation group. Yeah. So for our listeners and for mm -hmm. us, give us sort of a an approximation when you talk about big firm billing and middle firm billing, what is sort of a, what would be a typical rate if you're at one of these top global firms dealing with a top partner and you're transacting on one of these massive office buildings? Yeah. I mean, talk me through that so we have some context on what the value play is and what the ranges are. Just we have some idea. Obviously, I know there's so many variables. But. Sure. So, look, when I when I pitch a client, I never want to lead with rate because uh, I it's we're still expensive, right? I'm, I lead with quality. I lead with experience. But there is just a fact of of uh, cost that these large firms who have large overheads and are uh, have a great number of junior associates to feed, they have to charge more for their hourly product. So with that said, it is not uncommon for the senior partner uh, of a large firm to now bill around 1500 an hour. And Ooh. I've heard that it has even gone up to 2000 an hour for the highest of tax lawyers and bankruptcy lawyers. And look, those firms are, are great yeah. for bet the company litigation for the largest of transactions when you need an army of junior associates to be staffed on your deal. Um, and it comes with, with a price. Yeah. Uh, the junior and mid-level associates at those firms start at 
600 an hour, 500 mm. an hour. Uh, a fourth year associate, I think, is around seven, 800 an hour. So that Got is it. where the big value difference is because yeah. you, a client can justify, it's not my money, but I know they can justify paying 1500 for the top attorney at a Latham, at a Gibson Dunn, mm-hmm. at a Skadden Arps, if it's going to get the deal done. And maybe they're going to do it even more efficiently. Yeah. But where we become so much more competitive is when they compare the rates of junior to mid-level associates Got it. to ours. And so when, when a big firm's junior mid-level associates are more expensive than me who's been practicing 20 years or my right. colleagues who've been practicing, you know, so 20, 25, 30 years. Difference, it is a major difference. And yeah. so our rates are, um, you know, partners are in the sixes and uh, per hour and uh, senior associates in the fours and a couple of junior associates that we have are in the yeah, high threes. So it's, uh, it's a major difference. We're talking two, three, four times sometimes, depending on what level uh, of service. Now, uh, that's really interesting because it's you would think that your niche would have already been around for decades. You know, the niche of hey, we have all we have these partners that have big firm experience, but we're now taking it to more of a boutique level. And you know, why do you think that didn't exist? And you obviously you guys cap, you know, capitalized on that opportunity. Yeah. So I think there's a number of reasons. Um, one, lawyers are risk averse people. Okay. I'm not, but most lawyers are. And so there's comfort in being at a large institutional firm who will pay for everything. everything. Your rent, your malpractice, your overhead, associates, paralegals, secretaries, assistants, business development budget. Uh, Lawyers are paid, the salaries of junior to mid-level associates are extremely high when, because back in the dot-com, the first dot-com craze of the early 2000s, even in the late 90s, uh, law firms were losing a- associates to dot-coms yes, who that. wanted attorneys in-house and they were just throwing money at them. Yeah. Well, it happened again. And so it's happening with the Netflixes yeah. of the world and digital media. Come in-house, get... Equity and big salaries and benefits. And Absolutely. So law firms are now having to compete against that. In fact, I saw an article uh, this week that my competition isn't necessarily other law firms. It's in-house, it's companies yeah. that are what, building what their about, in-house right? counsel. So you need to then overpay your associates to keep them, to the keep retention. them. And yeah. so then that has a strain on the billing rate that you charge your clients. Of course. And it's just cyclical, right? Totally. So why didn't it happen until now? I think it was really the escalating costs of, of uh, junior associates and mid-level associates and clients pushing back on these rates. And um, you know you don't have to be at the 50th floor of a beautiful century city or downtown right. office building. You can get reasonably priced space and not have uh, one attorney for each uh, uh, for for an assistant, but but nowadays with shared assistance, shared assistance of shared space, half a dozen uh, lawyers or more, and more economies of scale, and people working from home, and All there that. are ways to save on costs. Yeah. So an interesting point that I want to hit on and, and dive deeper, and 
you know, saying attorneys are risk adverse and, you know, it's not really entrepreneurial. Well, you are and you've been entrepreneurial from early on doing your own investments. And I know you've gotten some income properties. Uh, it, it seems like you do a lot of sort of uh, entrepreneurial startup investing, even even within your clients. Are you? I mean, yeah. I think from my perspective, and I, I don't know for sure, but are you investing in deals alongside clients as well? Yes, uh, absolutely. So one yeah. of the reasons, benefits that we have of being at our firm, we're very entrepreneurial. So we have a separate fund that we set up to invest both in real estate, uh, for real estate deals and corporate deals. And uh, it, it's the law. Look, I love practicing law. I love helping clients. I love advising and structuring deals and and getting to a closing. Uh, but it also provides great uh access to deal and deals and deal flow. And so last year we probably reinvested fees in over a half a dozen, if not eight or so deals. Wow. Clients like it because they feel confidence that their law firm is investing and you know we we protect ourselves and get the normal conflict waiver letters at, you know, law firms I think procedurally were maybe risk averse and but it's a lot easier to do it when you're a 30 person firm as opposed to a 3000 person firm. Yeah. Uh, and and so I enjoy it. And then also uh, separate and apart from my clients, investing with my clients, I have uh, uh, some apartment buildings that 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 I've had uh, in LA for some time. So walk me through if you could, I don't know if you can disclose or not, but walk me through what, what would be a typical deal you've done with a client where you've invested money. How does it come about? So what what is sort of the, is it something the client asks you to do? Is it something that it just comes up organically? But what's the t- type of asset class, deal size? What Walk me through an example so we have an idea of like how that all looks. And then what happens once it's bought moving forward? I, I assume you're just you know, now an owner. Yeah. So all asset classes yeah. from multifamily in LA to multifamily in the uh, Portland area, to uh, office buildings uh, throughout the West Coast, uh, an RV park in Northern California, uh, property in Texas. So it really runs the gamut. How does it come about? You know, there's there's really two ways that my clients capitalize deals. One is through syndicating with friends, family, and other limited partner investors and let's say the average check that they're that that their investors are writing hundred thousand two hundred thousand dollars and they aggregate a couple million dollars maybe more over a dozen to do to two dozen people that's one way they structure a deal usually smaller deals are structured that way the other way that a deal is structured, a more institutional deal, is through a joint venture structure where my client, an operator, sponsor, we call them, uh, is partnering with a large private equity institution, a Goldman Sachs, a Morgan Stanley, a JP Morgan, AEW, that uh, will provide 90 to 95%, in some cases, 100% of the equity. And then the sponsor operator puts up 5 to 10%. In those JV deals, usually there isn't an opportunity for me to invest. It's the syndicated deals when they're going, yeah, when they're going out to their community, the lawyers and yeah. doctors and entertainers right. and their friends. And so 
that's when I see an opportunity to invest. And once the deal closed, so I have my lawyer's hat on in, in, in getting the, the deal structured, papered, closed. And then after that, I'm an investor. You become a limited partner. Uh, I'm a like limited partner. Else. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Very interesting. And we've had great success and round trips and uh, converted uh, uh, certain investments uh, here in LA to larger investments uh, elsewhere. And it's something that uh, uh, I look forward to continuing uh, in doing. Good. So let's get back to some fun stuff. Yeah. So how uh, how does sports play a role in your life now? Because right, the, the law is not fun. No, that was really fun, especially investing with clients. Like, I love that. But uh, are you still playing sports? I know you were doing golf, tennis, softball. I, I don't know. If, did you guys retire or are you still playing? We retired, as you know. Yeah. Well, first, let's talk about the rivalry of Danny Brown and Andrew Kirsch between our two teams yes, in softball. Yes. Uh, so your team called Westside Moose. Westside Moose. Why was it called Westside Moose? Um, that's you never knew that. No, it's a great story. Yeah. Uh, so wait a minute. This is I'm I'm the guest here. So how how long are you going to speak for? Uh, I don't know. Are you? <laughs> am I getting billed fifteen hundred an hour for this? That that would be if I was at a larger firm. Oh, so I'm getting six fifty. All right. So we're about three hundred in. <laughs> Really quickly, we were the West Side. A bunch of guys were, you know, come back from high school, college, pro ball from different schools on the West Side. Mainly it was Uni and Pally, mm-hmm. all good buddies from Uni and Pally. And then Steve, I don't know if you remember, there was one guy on our team that never played baseball, Steve Rogers. And his dog, a golden retriever dog, would come and be our mascot in the early days for the first five, 10 years. Moose was the name of the dog. Mm. So we, at first, I think we were West Side, and then we decided, you know what, West Side Moose. Because Moose Moose passed away, we wanted to keep Ah. the legacy alive, and that was our only fan. No one else showed up. Yeah, so I'm sure- girlfriends didn't care, you know, uh, no one- It's very similar to to our softball story, but I I, I don't know if you were associates for hire. Yeah, but not- Bastards. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you could track ratings on your podcast, but this is the time (laughs) of the podcast when I think all your listeners are going to drop off when we talk about (laughs) softball of middle-aged guys uh, who used to be baseball players back in the day. So, um, yeah, our team was called Associates for Hire initially because we were in the uh, Lawyers League and let's just say I wasn't satisfied with the quality of JV league. Uh, I wasn't qualified. I wasn't satisfied with the quality of players at the firm that I worked for. And so I was looking for other lawyers who had quality softball experience. <laughs> so, you were, so, so we were recruiting. called associates for hire. And then we sort of expanded to my friends who yeah. weren't necessarily lawyers and right. didn't really qualify in the Landau lawyers league. And so we had to go to the city of LA softball league. And we uh, never played each other in our league play, but in the t- postseason tournament play, yes. when I saw the brackets and I saw that we were going to be up against Westside Moose to get to that trophy, <laughs> we knew it was going to be a challenge, especially facing Danny Brown. Yeah, it was. And uh, those first few years, <laughs> uh, I think you got us probably all the time. And then something <laughs> happened. I think age yeah. and having kids and... It's hard to keep that fire going. You couldn't keep forever. it going. We were, uh, <laughs> except for, I guess, yesterday, we were like the Golden State Warriors and we took over and started started beating you guys, you guys started, up. started uh, winning. Yeah. I wouldn't say beating us up. I would say I think I pulled up some, some scores and it was, it was pretty bad, Danny. 
Some of the slaughters. So. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it must have been when we were missing a lot of players, but not in the playoffs. But you did beat us. We did beat you. you beat, I got to tip my hat. We got old, we got soft, and you beat us. Those championship games played out in that valley. It was like 110 degrees. It was horrendous, but fun. We trained all season, all year long to yes, play you, you guys. Yes, you guys did. You yes. guys did train. We didn't Two practice once in 20 years, but you did practice, and you caught us and beat us at the end. That's hard work pays off. We got lazy. Thank you. Well, I still play a little bit of still softball. Still a bunch of punks. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Two kids later, and we don't we don't go out to the valley anymore in the weekends. We uh, right, so you're done. Well, we're still we're still playing at La Cienega Park, but it's it's not as competitive as it used to be. Yeah. Well, no, it's softball. City of L.A. softball. Right. She really is like Robin in uh, yeah. Howard Stern. I love this. We should introduce you in the in the podcast. Yeah, we did. That's Sarah. Yeah. She played some volleyball, by the way. She's yeah. got some volleyball skills. Should we have like one big challenge of the old guys softball, rent the UCLA softball stadium, televise it on YouTube or something? And, you know, 100 grand winner takes all kind of thing. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Let's let's set that up. Only 100? 500? Okay. Then that's worth something. I, I mean, I... We don't want to waste time. We don't want to waste time or ligaments or hamstrings. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be like... Uh, the um uh gosh what was the movie we were talking about earlier oh yes I'm forgetting yes. the name uh, already the yes. robin williams movie with kurt russell yes. the best of times best of times yes. that'll be us the best yeah, of be time. Us. one last that'll game be us. maybe you'll hit that home run one last time so tell me a little bit about um balance in your life i love to ask everyone that comes on you know they're busy guys yeah. you have a life you have a family you have kids uh you big business and you have you're still athletic like to work out how do you balance it all do you have balance to what is your take speak on that yeah it's a daily challenge and so first and foremost obviously family comes first but i have a business and i have clients and so i'm constantly juggling and i have podcasts to do yeah uh there's always several balls in the air and how do you just make that work? And it's, it starts with fantastic communication with your spouse. And so for me, Courtney and I uh, have a really great marriage and I try and come home uh, by six o'clock most nights. So I have dinner with the kids and got it and a routine, a routine and bath time and dinner time and bedtime and story time. And usually that goes till about eight ish. And then, start the computer back up back and, work. and crank out more documents and respond to emails and need, if need be, get on calls. And uh, usually in the mornings, unless if I'm on drop off duty, that's when I you know, try and get my workout in. And uh, I'm the type of guy where if I'm not, uh, if I don't have my workout in the morning, then the whole day just doesn't feel right. Uh, so you you make it you make it work right you limit the number of um there's an endless number of business development opportunities whether it's dinners with clients or networking events or i'm in ypo and uli and other events that require travel i curtailed that to once twice at the most per week um so i'm home most of the nights yeah uh Courtney, she still crushes you in tennis, right? She's a much better tennis player. Oh, so, she can play. So Courtney uh, was a really accomplished uh, USTA ranked tennis player, and yeah, she's so you just have no maybe you get five smoked. foot one, and like she just smokes you. Oh, she she could beat me six zero six zero, and you know I'm pretty and not athletic. Break a sweat and not break a sweat. And there was one, there literally was one time when. 
I don't know, we were we were dating first first started dating and and I said let's let's play tennis. And I used to play recreationally with with guys and you know we have these drag out knockdown matches. And so now I'm playing my I guess my girlfriend I could call her dating her at the time and and she literally has me running from sideline to sideline, from baseline to net, from sideline to sideline just to try and keep up. 5 minutes later I'm on the ground panting, <laughs> panting. <laughs> I had never experienced that. And she's just in the middle of the court. Just having a good time. Yeah, it was like Federer against like the 10,000th player of the world. And um, so after a couple of kids, she uh, she really hasn't played much uh, at all. Uh, But I'd like for her and I to play with our kids as they get older. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've been playing tennis. I've been I've been getting into it. Just starting. Oh, yeah. I need to get back to it because I've given it some time All off. Right, so let's play. We'll play. I'm not playing Courtney. I'll play. Me and Courtney will play against you and Jessica. <laughs> I think that sounds like a that, great that, doubles that will match. Balance it out. Yeah. So I know you are really serious about fitness. So what is your workout routine and what types of workouts are you doing? Interesting. Uh, yeah. So. I'm not one of these crazy guys who has to have the most advanced workout. And I know everyone's got like the Fitbit and, and, and different apps that monitor literally every single output of their, of their workout. That's not me. So I still, I, I go to the gym probably five-ish to six days a week. And I'm, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, getting after it. <laughs> I try and change it up, uh, whether it's lifting weights or running, or we do a boot camp at Brentwood Country still doing Club. We the still, boot camp? look, it's 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 Country Club boot, boot camp. camp. It's yeah. like how how hard could that be, right? It could be hard uh, because I have tried real boot camp uh, on Lincoln and Venice with a buddy of mine, uh, and I thought. Yeah, it was something like that. Uh, I think it's called the Deuce. I forget what it's called. On the beach, you guys. No, go- no, no, no. It was on Lincoln. Um, I thought I was gonna just die, and I hurt my back, and that just wasn't for no, me. No, right? no, just no. like lifting incredible weights. I still lift, but that was insane. So, but we do that outside on the golf course at six a.m. on Tuesdays, and it's just great to be out there. A lot of fun, and you know, it's just to work out enough where you. Uh, get a good sweat, feel limber, and you're ready to take on the day. And re- especially on the weekends, for me, when I'm going to be with my kids for most of the day, it's like, that's my time, that's your time. for an hour to... Uh, all right, so that's my wire confirmation. He's got a call. You got to take it. I have to confirm my wire. Take and it. Are we doing this Can on we the stop the, the billing, though? Absolutely. Pause the billing. I'm not getting billed. This is interesting. This is a real call here. Big money. Big money on the line. Who's got the time on this? Leave it to Kirsch. We got live wires coming. I don't know. I don't think this was it. That wasn't it? I don't know. They said I was going to get a wire confirmation, but it was supposed to be from someone else. All All right. right. Let's continue. Sorry. I'm in the middle of, we're refining our house. Let's do 100 push-ups now. Let's see. (laughs) So you're in good shape, clearly. You do any, do you do any, um, Mental meditation, mindfulness, anything to keep your thoughts together, or is it just workout? Yeah, I, I, I don't really. I, you know, I try and just be a very positive person. And look, you're never going to be positive every single minute of the day. There are ups and downs. Kids yelling at you, wife yelling at you, clients yelling at you, uh, and that just happens before eight a.m. Yeah. So it's it's just keeping perspective, right? 
Um, being grateful and being appreciative. Yeah. I hate to even bring this up, but I just had my, uh, graduation for, uh, not my personal graduation, but YPO, uh, young president's organization. I'm in the Malibu chapter and we have a graduation each year where when you're 50 years old, you grab, you, you graduate out. And unfortunately this year, one of our, my dearest friends and members of the chapter, passed away unexpectedly oh, in a motorcycle accident yes, right I here know, on uh, what, like Crescent and Santa Monica yes. Boulevard. And we had a tribute to him. And It's heartbreaking. Uh, it, it, you, you don't want to use someone's passing uh, as, as a wake-up call, but I think we all, all of it's us, inevitable, inevitably, inevitable right? So, so you try and just not sweat the small stuff and... Um, Shit's gonna happen, right? And and whether it's work related or family related, kids related, if you have your health and things are going well, and we're all you know doing relatively well in our jobs and families and careers, and um, uh, it's it that 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 tidal wave of life. If if you get sucked up on every single, uh, you get too high on thing when things are going well, yeah. and and come really down when when some bump in the road occurs i don't know how you can live life like that and if you take a holistic approach and you know so when un, really tragic things happen it really sort of recalibrates the way you think about yeah. your day-to-day life yeah it rocks you to the core yeah it's inevitable yeah it's just it's tragic to hear that kind of stuff but it, it a lot of times that does reset your thinking and wakes you up a little more and I feel like I always I always have to do a better job of appreciating what what I have and what we have all of us and and not letting the day to day mini dramas at work or home or become bigger than they really are because they're not health related it's not life or death yeah well look you and I are both in the service business and we have yeah. clients and so mm-hmm. the reality There's is a lot of stress in order to that. be successful in the service business you you have to always be on, always be responsive. And because of these iPhones, it's a blessing and a curse. You you don't have to now postpone vacations like, you know, our parents' generations uh, had to do if, right. if, if work was really intense. You can still go away. But the bad thing is when you, you're never away. Yeah, I've got a colleague right now who is in Europe and she's pumping out emails all hours of the day. And I feel badly, but it's just... That's There's the reality. This, this this expectation that we're always on is, it's it's a challenge. It and it just I don't yeah. know how it changes. Yeah. But I don't know how healthy it is for any of us to always be. On. I always feel like the worst thing to do is to always be on, and I you know try to fight it if I can, when I can. But the it's the it's a tug of war. You go on vacation, and it's I want to lock the phone up in the safe and be present for a couple of days, but then there's times you just can't do that there's critical deals going down and you have to be present for certain but you know it's a tug of war for sure i know well look uh clients are very concerned because it's such a competitive market as you know both in the single family residential market which you're an expert in and or commercial market uh they feel that time kills all deals Mm -hmm. and uh uh so i understand that there's urgency but sometimes when there's this I don't want to say call it fake, a fake urgency, but but an urgency that's not really urgent. Yeah, that's what gets to me. But you know, if if we the client says jump and we all say how high. Yeah, that's pretty. That's yeah. pretty. That's what we have to do. 
What is your take on the market? Kind of a big question. You're dealing with a lot of asset classes. Yeah. You're dealing with big institutions and I think some mom and pops. You have a pretty good broad scope. Yeah. I'd love to hear, you know, here we are, middle of 2019. It's been a good run. But I'd love to hear what you're seeing and your take and what you see happening and if there's any trends or things you're seeing. Sure. So at the end of 18, beginning of 19, I said to folks who wanted to listen, I said, I think 2019, there's going to be a pullback and there's going to be uh, a slowdown in commercial real estate. Gosh, was I wrong. Totally wrong. It, this has been the longest boom cycle in the commercial real estate business, uh, certainly in my 20-year career um, and probably in anyone's career the amount of capital that is just pouring into the United States globally and those that have it here into real estate is unprecedented. So uh, they see things like volatility in the stock market. They see volatility internationally and they see U.S. real estate across all asset classes as a very safe investment. So what that means is a lot of capital going to chase uh, real estate transactions. It drives up the price mm-hmm. um, in order for people to make things work. Then the capital has to be cheap. Interest rates are still very low. Yeah, They got up to about the 10-year treasury, which is the benchmark for yeah. most real estate deals, caught up to 3%. It's now they're... down to basically 2%. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't see an end. Uh, banks and lenders are being more conservative this time than in oh five, oh six, oh seven. It's 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 a crazy time where where there is just so much demand. Of course, there if there's a exigent circumstances that we can't control, God forbid, another nine eleven or something along yeah. those lines, then that would change the That's whole game changer. Yeah, that would change everything, but. Right now, it's it, it just seems like it is uh, uh, a a very hot market that I know a lot of my clients are looking and wanting it to pull back so they, they can, can re-enter the market yeah. uh, and and buy at some type of discounted pricing. And this, we're not just talking about Southern California. I mean, we're talking about markets like Seattle and Portland and Vegas and Phoenix and Denver and Salt Lake and Texas and Nashville. And we're I, transacting I just everywhere. Got back from Nashville two days ago, and it's oh, yeah. booming. Nashville cranes is in the hot. sky. Cranes hot. in the sky yep. everywhere. So at some point, doesn't it have to stop, Danny? I, I don't know what uh, common sense says. Yes, can't go on forever. Cycles are cycles. That said, I the sentiment you're speaking about is exactly how I felt and feel. I thought the end of 18 is certainly at the high end, started slowing down, and beginning of 19, it seemed like, okay, this this is the correction year. And then sometime by the end of the first quarter, things just exploded and took off again and with more velocity than ever, uh, except for the ultra high end and residential. The ultra high end is it's it's always in its own world, and that's, that's slower. But entry points in any neighborhood, entry level, it's just on fire, multiple offers. You know, if you're a buyer, you're so frustrated, you can't compete. Interest rates are low, not a lot of inventory, all that stuff. But it, common sense still says this can't go on forever, but how it's gonna wind down and how it's gonna transition, it's hard to say because the interest rates are so low. 
I really don't see it ending immediately. It just seems it's going to take a while for the interest rates to play out. And if the interest rates are low, unless there's some other act of God or some other socio-geographical, political, massive event, I, I don't see it happening uh, in the next six months. You know, maybe in the next 18 to 24, we'll see. I mean, we don't know what the, what's around the corner. But, uh, you know, I love asking that from people that are in the trenches because it, it's just so interesting, um, the amount of time it's been and what's going on. And it's just so it's so hard to always predict. No one has the crystal ball and they they don't they don't have the crystal ball. Yeah. And there's so many different avenues of of capital now that didn't exist 10 years ago. So private lenders, debt funds, every week there's a new debt fund. And this is in the commercial real estate space or single family home uh, fix and flip space, construction yeah. space. If pe- So people have access to capital. If they're not going to be on the equity side or buying real estate, they're going to be lending on real estate. And so that has just, because it has flooded the markets, it has kept rates down. Yeah. Uh, and kept and prices up. Kept, and kept prices up. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, my wife and I always have one eye in, uh, on the residential market. And I mean, it's crazy of, of how yeah. expensive it has gotten. And yes, I understand. I agree with the, the ultra high end, uh, home, which is where, you know, you and Jessica play, we, we can't no. get, we can't get that high, but uh, it, that has come down. Um, it just seems like it's a completely distorted reality of what it costs to live in a decent a house nice in yeah. the West side of LA. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. Well, any advice you'd give to up and coming attorneys, attorneys that are early on in their career, maybe kids in law school, what would you say to them if they were like, Hey, you know, what, What's the world for a young attorney looking like, uh, especially if they were interested in real estate? What would be your 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 advice? The Andrew Kirsch sage wisdom. Yeah. So uh, the law is get a broker's it, license. Get a broker's <laughs> license and make a ton of money in uh, in residential brokerage. Uh, now, look, I I really enjoy the practice of law. I think that. It's a stepping stone to the broader real estate. There, there are many ways you can play in the real estate market. And so I see many brokers, whether they're residential brokers or multifamily brokers, office brokers, who utilize that them being a service provider as a way to make a nice income, but gives them access to deals and they are also actively doing deals. And for the longest time, there was never really a conflict with brokers who are doing deals as principals. But there was this perception that a lawyer shouldn't be. And I feel like that, why? I don't understand. We're Yes, providing a service and you need to perfect your craft. And what did Malcolm Gladwell say? It takes 10,000 hours hours. to be an expert. So if you're billing 2,000 hours a year, that would take five Five years. Five years, but it's probably more. It's probably closer to eight to 10. Uh, Probably for me, I don't I would, am I an expert at 20? I would hope so. But that's, uh, it takes a long time to be an expert, especially years. Brokerage, and if you're really legal in it services, deep, ten years. If you're not, you have to be doing it, a lot of deals. Yeah, if you're not doing a lot of deals, you're not going to be an expert in fifteen or twenty or thirty years. Sure. So, 
I, I know a lot of successful lawyers who have also pivoted into being on the principal side at real estate companies. And so, so there's, I guess my advice to, to young attorneys or anyone in, in the real estate business, if they're starting as a broker or lawyer, is look at real estate holistically, look at your profession holistically, and you, and, and, but most importantly, perfect your craft, be an expert, because there aren't enough experts. There's too many, uh, what is it called? Jack of all trades, masters of none. And, and then utilize your expertise, broaden your uh, outlook and, and become immersed in the real estate industry, not just as a lawyer, as a broker, but invest, be a principal, uh, you don't necessarily have to be the day-to-day operator if you're too busy being a broker or lawyer, but be a limited partner. Yeah, and then that way, great advice. You've got investments that are hopefully going to be fruitful for you one day. Well, thank you for joining us. It's awesome to spend time with you. I definitely say let's challenge you to doubles, Courtney and I, and you and Jessica, and a softball. And then a softball rematch. Let's do that. And uh, anytime we can get together, it's always a pleasure. But thank you for coming down. It's awesome to see you. It was my treat. Thank you for having me. And you're not billing me, are you? Uh, you'll send. You'll see an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Thanks for joining us, Andrew Kirsch. You rock, man. Thanks, dude. Thank you for hanging with us on The Deal. Andrew Kirsch, amazing. Always enjoy hanging out with that guy, giving him a hard time about his baseball career. (laughs) You can find Andrew at Sklar Kirsch, S-K-L-A-R-K-I-R-S-H.com. Incredible, incredible group of attorneys if you ever need. Thank you, guys. Please tune in, subscribe, and leave comments. The more comments we get, the better for marketing, traction, guests, you can't get a better guest than Andrew Kirsch, can you? Not really. You can find me uh, anytime at Danny Brown LA on the gram or DannyBrownLA.com. Look forward to chatting with you guys soon. Bye bye. Watch me. I'm gonna be the best.